0: You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Genesis 1, 26-28 Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. that moves on the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everyone. It's so great to be with you. And to begin our new series, Left and Right, as Karma mentioned, please follow along on the website. Uh, There'll be some sort of sermon notes as well. But how about we pray as we get into it? Father God, we thank you that you are our God, that you guide and direct us, that you bring truth and life to us. Lord, we ask for your blessing as we uh, enter and begin this series We ask that you'll help us to see your will and your truth and respond to it well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In an article in The Nation magazine in November 2019, the writer Eli uh, Mistel declares, this Thanksgiving, it's time to take on your conservative relatives. Every holiday season, there is a flood of articles, features and puff pieces telling you how to have a safe holiday dinner with your family. How weak, how pathetic. We stand on the precipice of losing our American character to the forces of authoritarianism and bigotry. For many people, this holiday season will be the last face-to-face encounter with family members before the most consequential election of our lifetimes. And yet many people are desperate to pass the potatoes without starting any uncomfortable conversations. The holidays are when your resistance is needed. You might not like conflict, but if you choose to break bread with Trump supporters and climate change deniers because you uh, deniers because you happen to be related to them, then conflict is required. Anything less is appeasement. Pretty strong rhetoric, I think you'll agree. And it's not just one side of politics speaking like this. In a recent speech, the Republican candidate in a Maryland election in America asked his listeners to imagine how a foreign power might prepare for an attack on America. We would expect them to make our borders porous. We would expect them to make our cities unsafe places to live. We would expect them to try to ruin our economy. And he suggested that's exactly what the Democrats are doing. The country then, he says, is at war and the enemy, the left, has co-opted members and agencies of our government. America is a country divided, divided over politics. And the statistics bear this out. Pew research in the United States shows that political views are becoming more extreme. The people on the left are going further left, the people on the right are going further right. And both say that the opposing party is so misguided that they threaten the nation's very well-being. And this kind of thing is actually happening all over the world, in Britain, in France, in Italy, and yes, here in Australia. The political commentator, Matthew Lesh declared after the federal election in May, Australians are more divided than at any time in recent history. As the writer Jonathan Lehman says, the political left and right used to talk to each other and reason with each other. Now they just shout. How did it get like this? Does it have to be like this? Can it be something better? And how as Christians should we live in this moment, in the midst of this? That's really what this series is all about. We've set up this series to help us think through the role, the place of Christians in a society that is divided, to consider Jesus in a political age. And today we'll start that process by thinking a little bit about how we've gotten here, thinking about the story of politics in the Bible and how that should shape our thinking today. Well, first of all, what is politics? What what exactly is politics? The Oxford Dictionary defines politics as the activities involved in getting and using power in public life and being able to influence decisions that affect a country or a society. The word uh, politics comes from the Greek word polos, which refers to a Greek city or state. And so the writer Scott H. Moore says that politics is about how we order our lives together in the polis, whether that's a city, a community, or even a family. And the family is actually a really helpful way for us to think about it. Uh, Hunter Baker is what you call a political philosopher, and he uses the family as his kind of entry point to explain how politics works. He writes, families have features such as leadership, order, fairness, debate, restrictions, coercion, and freedoms. There are priorities, decisions, boundaries, budgets, and many other aspects that mirror political life. Now, different families do this differently in ways that reflect how they think a family should be structured. And so, for instance, Hunter came from a family where things were pretty free, where they lived fairly independently. They would come together for certain things, some meals, for instance, and have some shared activities. But most of the time, he and his siblings lived quite independently. They got to do what they largely what they wanted to do, read the books that they chose. His wife, however, grew up in a very different family. Theirs was a very structured family that spent lots of time together always ate together, planned out family vocations, and so when they were together, it was all very structured, and her parents were extremely intentional in how they shaped their children. Here's the books that you can read, and these ones that you can't. The difference there is essentially the politics of family life. Their parents are seeking to structure their families, but they're doing it in a different way, two very different approaches so it gets pretty interesting when these ideas come together. So you see, when they got married, Hunter and his wife found that they often disagreed on how the family life should be structured. So when he was kind of hanging out with her family, he's kind of feeling constricted. Oh, I need more time on my own. I need more choices for myself. And on the other side, when his wife was hanging out with his family, she felt like, oh, this is too formless. I need some structure. I need to feel like I'm part of this community more strongly. Do you see what's happening here? They're disagreeing on the politics of family life. They have a different vision of how it should work. And these kinds of questions and differences that we see in families are replicated all the way up and all the way out in the broader society. And this is really where these terms left and right come in. It's actually a fascinating origin story the terms left and right. In 1789, right in the middle of the French Revolution, the French leaders met together in what was called the National Assembly. It was basically the first parliament. Louis XVI was still in power as king, but the people were demanding change. And this assembly came together to work out how they should structure their nation and their politics. As you can imagine, there was lots of different ideas about this And people found themselves quite naturally clumping together with the people that they agreed with. And it so happened that those who were loyal to the king and wanted to conserve the Catholic religion sat on the right-hand side of the parliament. And the people who were more revolutionary and radical and wanted to change things and see, see all of that change sat on the left of the building. And this became entrenched in the years that followed. The more traditional politicians sat on the right, and the more progressive politicians sat on the left. And over the years, this electoral setup has become a, a kind of metaphorical description of the two sides of politics and a certain key characteristics that have emerged. On the left, for instance, the focus is on the collective. On the right, it's on the individual. On the left, it's about big government. On the right, small government. On the left, it's about progressive Thinking and values, on the right, conservative. On the left, internationalist, and on the right, nationalist. Let's unpack that a little bit. First of all, notice where they locate their sense of identity. The left is all about a collective identity, it's about seeing us all as one tight collective community, responsible for each other. While the right tends to focus on individual autonomy, on a person's individual rights and their responsibilities. It's really a reflection of those differences that Hunter and his wife had. He would have been on the right, she would have been on the left. So this means that the left tends to advocate for big government. The government holds together the community, getting everyone working together to fix any problems that the nation has, whereas the right will focus on small government. We need to get the individual activated to fix everything. So when it comes to economic issues, for instance, the left will say we need to have a strong government intervention. They'll argue for workers' rights as a collective through trade unions. They'll make the case for redistribution of wealth so that everyone basically has the same, or they'll uh, encourage us to spend more on taxes so that we can all have access to Medicare, whereas in the right, they'll say that the key to making everyone uh, wealthy is for actually to get out of the way to allow private enterprise, that will solve the problems. And so well, sometimes we'll talk about big government and small government. A, kind of a more visceral uh, present example would be how we thought through COVID uh, and the role of the government in slowing the spread. We all recognised that there were medical and scientific questions, and yet very quickly it became a very political issue, didn't it? And it really brought out the right and the left. So on the right, everyone's saying, no, 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 we need to be free here. We need to take our own individual responsibility. I'll look after my own health. I'll, I'll make the right choices about who I should visit, all of those things. And on the left, they're saying, no, 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 we're all a collective. So we have to work through this together. And so we need to make these rules. Big government needs to intervene and even to mandate stuff because that's the only way it can work. There's that difference. Big government small government. Next, consider how the left and the right approach culture and ethics and morality. The left is what we call progressive, open to change and new ideas, and the right is more conservative. They want to conserve things, traditions, conventions, old values. In terms of religion then, the the left is pluralist, saying that we should be allowed to have any religion or no religion, On the right, it tends to be more conservative, trying to maintain old values. Holding all of this together, that's why parties on the left in Australia, like the Greens, uh, will push for things like uh, civil rights more than the right, but it's also why they'll advocate for things like abortion or euthanasia. Finally, you could say that the left is internationalist and the right is more nationalist. So people on the left of politics try to present a bigger picture of the world. We find ourselves in a collective, not just within the nation, but within the world, whereas in the right, they tend to focus more on life at home, our own cultural identity. So in Britain, the left were in favour of the EU and a, a larger vision of society and community, while the right were in favour of Brexit, going back to old England. And here in Australia, parties on the left will tend to focus more on multiculturalism or asylum seekers. And those on the right will talk a lot about the importance of maintaining our borders. So we have someone like Pauline Hanson on the right side of politics. That's kind of a basic overview. So the question is, which one's the best, right? Like, is the left right and the right wrong or is the other way around? Well, first of all, I hope you can see how difficult it is to box people in too tightly. There's a lot of variety within each side. We often talk about the political spectrum, far right to far left, and all these points along the way. Even within the Labor Party, which is on the left-hand side of politics, you'll hear on the news they'll talk about the left faction of the party and the right faction. Even within this own party on the left, there's this diversity. And so someone's political identity can be really complicated. I think this is particularly the case for Christians. You see, we might stand on the right on moral issues. We're conservative about that. But you may well stand on the left on other social issues. Perhaps you're ashamed by our treatment of asylum seekers. But really what I want you to see here, most of all, is that both sides have their own worldviews, their own take on how society should function, their own political vision. And they want the power to make that a reality. And that, my friends, is why there's so much conflict in politics. Both people, both sides have this desire to make their vision a reality and they need the power to do it. But where does power come from? To understand that, I think we need to understand the story of politics. You see, ultimately, power begins with God himself. All power begins with God. He's the sovereign Lord of all creation and he rules all things. He's king of kings and Lord of lords. Psalm 22, kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. And yet the Bible indicates that he has delegated power to humans in creation. We see that in our reading, don't we? Genesis 1:26 Then God said, "Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish in the sea, etc." The sovereign Lord of all things has given dominion to humans. God has delegated authority to us to look after his world. And we get a sense of what that looks like in verse 28. God bless them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens. This is often called the creation mandate. And you can see three big commands in it. There's a social command. Be fruitful and multiply. Have families. Make communities. There's a cultural command. Work the soil. Make civilization. And then there's a regal command, have dominion over all of these things. And so our job is to do something constructive with creation, to make it flourish. Johannes Reimer writes, humans are set to cultivate and rule the created world in accordance with God's will. Our human mission is to order, civilise and rule the world. In other words, humans are responsible to determine a meaningful space for living. Remember that phrase, a meaningful space for living. That's our job. This is the job really of government. And this is, of course, a a massive responsibility. And so God made sure to equip us for it. We are created in his image, after his likeness. He, He models us on him. So he gives us wisdom and ability to do the work that he's entrusted to us. Uh, Richard Middleton explains that, being, by, that by being made in God's image, we've been made to be his representatives, his agents in the world, authorised to share in his rule. Uh, in the ancient world, a, a king, when he wasn't present physically, would leave images of himself around the place. And when you saw that image, it was a sign of who was actually in charge. That's what God's done. He's left images of himself Right through the world. We are made in his image to represent his authority. In a very real sense, then, God rules this world through us. I think you could say that this is where politics begins. God is structuring the world that he has created according to a vision of how he thinks things should be. He's the ultimate ruler. But we've been brought into this work. God rules the world through us. It's a beautiful vision, an incredible honour for humanity, and it would have worked beautifully if humans had accepted that role properly. But, of course, we did not. See, the Bible begins of this, with this beautiful picture of everything in the right place, power working in the right way. The, the Garden of Eden is this meaningful space for living. There's peace and flourishing. But then everything is disrupted by this great power struggle. In Genesis 3, the serpent, the devil, comes to Adam and Eve and encourages them to take power into their own hands. God had given Adam and Eve everything. But he did tell them not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Really, what he was doing was he was saying, I need you to submit to my authority and trust that my vision for you is best. But in Genesis 3, the devil undermines all of that. And he urges them to take the fruit and promising that is basically saying that God has just not allowed you to do this because he's holding out on you. He wants to keep all of the power for himself. And God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God. Do you see what he's saying here? You can be like God. You can have power. You can have the power that you deserve. You can rule the world without God instead of God. Heck, you can create your own world totally outside of his domain. Adam and Eve fall for this, and humanity has ever since. We want to be God. We want the power of God so that we can be creators, so that we can shape the world the way that we want it. Really, I think we want to make this world in our image. See, see, it's like God created us in his image, and we want that power to create something in our image something that fits our desires, that works to our glory. But in doing so, we take God out of the picture, ignoring and defying his authority and assuming it for ourselves. It's an incredible show of arrogance, isn't it? Of ungratefulness. Like God has given humanity the most remarkable honour. He's chosen to rule the world through us. But that still isn't enough for us. We want, we demand more. We want his kingdom for ourselves. It's it's cosmic treason. And yet God is gracious to us. He had every right to just destroy us on the spot. That's what you do to a traitor. But he chose not to. And actually continues on with the same structure. See, it's important to note that God doesn't just do away with government now that the world is broken. The creation mandate remains. He remains sovereign and we remain part of his work. So he decides to still rule the world through us. And yet because of sin, this task is incredibly difficult, impossible. In fact, first of all, Our governments must rule a fallen world. You see, the world that God made was built with an inbuilt tension in it. As long as humanity acknowledged God's ultimate authority, everything would work perfectly. But as soon as we defied that, things fell apart. The fall of humanity uh, into sin sabotaged the world. Genesis 3, cursed is the ground because of us. This means that it's much harder for us to have dominion over this world there's hunger and famine there's drought there's flood there's disease there's disability there's selfishness there's aging there's death there's greed because we resisted god the world is resisting us and we can't fix this see we imagine we were told by the devil that we could be like god that we didn't need him but actually it turns out that we don't have the power that god has To fix this world. And the truth is, even if we did have that power, we couldn't agree on how to fix it. See, here's the other big problem each of us has a vision for the world, but they're all different. See, I want to make the world in my image, but so do you, in your image. And so we're all striving to create this world that we imagine, that we envisage, this utopia that we have in mind. So whose vision wins? Mine or yours? And then we bring this attitude to politics, to government. Each party has this vision for prosperity, but who gets to prevail? Who has the power, us or them? My party or your party? See, really, politics is our personal struggle writ large. Parties fighting for power to see their vision come to fruition. And of course, even when it's our sides that's in power. Things don't work out the way that we want it to. Our heroes end up having feet of clay and overcome by their own duplicity or cowardice. Political ideologies prove ineffectual. What's that line they say about communism? The only reason it hasn't worked is because it hasn't been tried properly. I mean, ask the 65 million people who have died in communist regimes in China, in the Soviet Union, in Cuba, in Eastern Europe. And yet still we carry on investing our hopes in politics, imagining that this time things will be different, that this politician is above the rest, that this party is pure, that this ideology is wise. And there's a kind of desperation here, a kind of hopeless and blind trust and I think it points to the fact that we actually worship politics. Jonathan Lehman suggests that politics is the battleground of the gods. He writes, behind every protesters' picket line and social media campaign, political action, email is someone's basic worldview of how things ought to be. And behind that worldview is a god. See, so these gods re- reflect and shape our vision for the world, both for ourselves and for others. And so they drive our politics. He writes, the story of politics is the story of how you and I arrange everything to get what we worship. Every one of us employs whatever power we possess, including the mechanisms of the state, to gain whatever we find most worthy of worship. Politics, he says, serves worship. Governments serve gods. And that's ultimately why everything is so intense. In a fallen world, there's problems to solve. There's a vision that we have in mind. And so we're effectively making these these politicians and our ideas our gods, our saviors. And there's an irony here, of course, isn't there? You see, when humanity rebelled against God at the start, it was an attempt to be God, to make ourselves truly independent, to worship no one but we actually can't do it. We need something outside of us to validate or empower us, to justify our visions and give us hope that they can be fulfilled. We, we need a God. And so even if we refuse to worship the true God, we'll worship some other God. This then is, is politics in a fallen world, us against God, us against each other, me against you, party against party, all vying for power, a clash of worldviews, the battleground of the gods. We're at war with God, and so we're at war with everything else. But what does the real God make of all this? And what's he going to do about it? Johannes Rima writes, God made the world to serve his purpose. He's concerned with corruption and sin in the world since humans disobeyed him and allowed Satan to influence them. God is concerned with his rule over the world. He wants his kingdom back, a kingdom in which justice and righteousness rule. And we see him begin this work, really, through his people, Israel. See, God established Israel to be a theocracy, a nation ruled by God. God's people were his special people and he governed them in a special way. He gave them his blessing to make them a nation. He gave them his law so that they'd know how to live. He gave them kings to rule them fairly and justly. And then he gave them the opportunity to be a part of his plans in the world. In Isaiah, we're told that Israel is to be a light to the nations, to to show the world what it's like to live under God's rule. As Rima puts it, Israel are a model of a nation according to God's will and heart. Their calling is to be God's people in the world, to model an alternative culture and lifestyle. They're supposed to show everyone why God is worth trusting. But, of course, they didn't do that, did they? As we read through the Old Testament, we see them constantly disobey God's law. We hear that kind of refrain that they're just like the other nations, that they're just as chaotic just as broken as everyone else, and their kings, their politicians, are often the worst leading them astray. But despite all of this, God holds on to them and offers the promise of new grace. He promises this leader who will bring safety and life, a better king who will follow God's law, a king who would reign forever, the king of kings, God Himself. God promised to come and rule his people directly. This would become the great hope of God's people in dark times. And into all of this, this swirl of expectation, steps Jesus. When he came, Jesus announced that the kingdom was here. Luke 8, he went through the land proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. In fact, the The Gospel of Matthew has 55 references to the kingdom of God as Jesus declares that he's bringing it. Wherever Jesus went, he offered his vision for this kingdom, a place where people hungered for righteousness rather than power, a place where relationships were prized over possessions, a place where people would love their enemies and pursue peace. Really, Jesus was showing people what life under God's rule could be like, what life was supposed to be like, living with God. And yet people still, again, rejected him. I mean, granted, at times it looked like they were about to embrace him, but then they rejected him and bade for his blood. I mean, you think about that horrific moment, that horrible life and death election between Jesus and Barabbas. And they choose Barabbas rather than Jesus and send him to the cross. And the title, King of the Jews, is pinned to that cross, not in acclamation but in derision. And strangest of all, Jesus lets them do all of this. He seems to submit to their rebellion, to their treason. What's going on here? How could this happen? I mean, was Jesus just another failed politician offering promises that he couldn't fulfill? Because there is something political about Jesus' ministry. I mean, he's a king coming to claim his crown. He offers this transforming vision for society. As Raymond puts it, as soon as people suggest cultural and societal change, we name their action political. And yet there's something really complex about his political vision. You see, Jesus refused to play the power game. He didn't try to start a revolution, didn't overthrow the Romans. In fact, when the people tried to make him king, he refused, all of which points to the complex dynamics of the kingdom of God. You see, in the Bible, the kingdom of God is both a physical and a spiritual thing, and it's a thing that's both now and not yet. It's a physical reality. God is the sovereign Lord of all things, ruling over all people, and yet there's this spiritual resistance to that rule. I found the writer Kevin DeYoung really helpful on this. He he says the kingdom of God is less of a geographical concept and more of a relational one. He says biblically kingdom doesn't refer essentially to a piece of land but rather to rule or to reign. And so while Jesus has all authority over heaven and earth, right now it's only really seen in the hearts of his people. That's where he reigns. That's where the kingdom begins because they have submitted to his rule. That's what happens when you become a Christian. First of all, you acknowledge God's ultimate authority as your creator. Then you confess your sin to him. You own up to your rebellion, to your treason. And then you put your faith in Jesus. You see, for us to become a part of God's kingdom, we must first be forgiven for our rebellion. And the only way that's possible is if Jesus dies for our sin. Justice and virtue demands that God does something about our sin. That means that it must be punished. But Jesus takes that punishment For us. It's extraordinary. To assert his authority, he must deal with humans' treachery, but he dies for the traitors. That's what Jesus is doing on the cross. And we receive that when we put our faith in him as our saviour who died for our sin and as our Lord who should rule our lives. And when we do that, we become part of his kingdom. Colossians 1, he's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And so the church then is the gathering of all of those who've submitted to Christ's rule. This is where Christ's kingdom begins. But it's only the beginning because Jesus deserves more. You see, at first glance, Christ's death looks like a a defeat, but it's actually a victory. Because he was obedient, because he humbled himself, death could not hold him down, and so he rises again. And as he rises, the Bible tells us that he was claiming his crown. Philippians 2, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is lord to the glory of God the father see in his death jesus was actually securing all authority every knee shall bow and tongue confess that he is the lord that is coming he will rule in justice and joy he will judge his enemies he will bring in a new world He will achieve his political vision, so to speak. Revelation 21, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. That's what Jesus is doing. He will fix the fallen world. He will follow through on his promises. He has the power to achieve a lasting and perfect and eternal transformation. And so really, when Jesus was rejected by humanity, we can read it in two ways. At one level, it's just the continuation of that human story of rebellion, always rejecting God's authority. But in another angle, it's actually how Jesus claimed his authority. As creator, God deserves all power, and in Jesus, he claims it. But why, then, don't we see this completely? I mean, Christ has defeated death. He's got the power to change everything, to make it all better. So why hasn't he done it yet? Well, here's the other paradox. Just as the kingdom is both physical and spiritual, it's also now and not yet. So Christ already has all authority. He's sovereign, but he chooses not to assert that authority over all people immediately. Instead, he's chosen to bring it in gradually, and to do it in and through his people. So here's the incredible thing. God has chosen to use his church to bring in the kingdom. Just like Israel was to be a light to the nations, so the church is to be a city on a hill, shining the light of God's goodness to the world around us. We're, We're a kind of alternative society, That's what Johannes Riemann calls it. The church is a new society of the kingdom of God in the midst of human kingdoms. So while there's all of these other rulers and powers around us, we create this space where humans can see a different way of living, a new culture, a positive alternative. We're like the the embassy of a foreign nation. We're an embassy of heaven. If you were to go into the South African embassy, Today, you will be stepping onto South African soil. You're in Australia, but in that moment, you're in South Africa, so to speak. It's the same with the church. We're this embassy of heaven. When you're part of the church, you're getting a taste, a preview of heaven. This is truly where God is reigning and it's pointing us towards the future when that reign is through all the world. Our task is actually... Summed up really nicely in Matthew 28 and the Great Commission. Jesus comes to his disciples just before he leaves them and gives them his final instructions. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to to the end of the age. So Jesus has the authority, he has this political vision, he wants to see the world transformed, and he begins with us and invites us to be a part of his work. So in a very real sense, the church is a kind of political entity. We're serving this king, but note the emphasis is on his rule rather than our rule. As Rima puts it, the church is God's voice in the world. It proclaims the gospel of the kingdom of God. It does not rule the world but rather calls the world to submit under the rule of God. And what does that mean exactly? How do we live as this political entity, this alternative society? How do we live as a church in a political age? Does it mean that we seek political power, that we set up political parties, that we shape society with Christian laws? Or or does it actually mean that we should retreat from the public square and set up all of our own separate communities? They're the kinds of questions that are so important, and that's what I want to address next week when we think about how church and state relate to each other. But let me just leave you for two minutes with a couple of insights from the story of politics. First of all, We should acknowledge the blessing of politics. God has chosen to rule the world through humanity. We have an incredible honour that he would include us in that. And then secondly, we should mourn the fallenness of politics. We've been given this honour and we've defied him still. That's treason. Humanity now is in conflict. People against people, party against party, God against God. God made a good world, but sin has fractured it and sabotaged his goodness. So understanding that means that we should live realistically. We can seek to fix this world, but we need to do it realistically, knowing that we can't put our hopes in humans, truly because we're all flawed. Leaders are selfish. Parties are greedy, ideologies are unsound. That doesn't mean that we just give up by God's grace. He restrains human sin, brings out good even amongst bad. But it does mean that we don't look to politics to save us. It's not going to work. No politician, no party, no ideology can fix the problem because they're part of the problem. So don't put too much weight in them. Look instead to the true saviour. The true King, the King of Kings, and the Lord of Lords. Submit to Him personally and then serve Him publicly. So finally, we can live optimistically. Christ's reign begins with us and then it extends out. It begins with us as we humble ourselves under His authority and then it extends out from us as we live our lives, serving Him, showing His goodness, pointing people to the great king. So we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and we give ourselves to making that a reality. Let's pray now. Our Father in heaven, we acknowledge you as the great God and king, the king of kings and Lord of lords. We acknowledge you as the one who made all things, who made us, We're amazed that you would give us the opportunity to be a part of your work and your world, ruling under you. Lord, we mourn the fact that humanity has fallen and defied you. We confess and acknowledge that it's our fault, humanity's fault, that this world is broken. And it's our foolishness to imagine that we can fix it without you, We thank you that you sent Jesus. You didn't give up on this world, but you sent Jesus to show us your love, to make it possible for us to be forgiven and to begin a new thing, your kingdom. Jesus, may we submit to you as our Saviour and as our Lord. May we live our lives in submission to you, And in pursuit of your glory, thank you that your reign begins in us and then extends out from us. You have all authority. Help us then to make disciples of you. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.